I was sorry not to have been able to be with you last Sunday when Pastor Scott opened uh, God's Word. I spent most of the week, I have spent and am spending most of the week a little bit under the weather, but this morning I am full of antibiotics and steroids, enough so that at least I'm standing in front of you and enough, hopefully, to help me open the scriptures to you. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to start looking at, uh, I'm going to read uh, from verses 18 through verse 27. We're going to look at verses 24 to 27 in specific, but we're going to read first from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, let's look at what the Holy Scripture says. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has, been, just as it has taught you, remain in him." Now, the last time we read these uh, paragraphs, we spent most of our time thinking about those who have left the faith, those that we know who have at one point in time, who were at one point in time in this room, at one point in time worshiped with us, but have left the faith. We all know people like this, family and friends that we've had. It's not just that they've left and gone to another church or they've moved out of the area. It's that they have left the faith, most of them slowly some of them more quickly, just drifting away. We, we, this passage speaks to those in that situation, those who have left. Now, uh, most of the people that we know who have left the faith are in a slightly different class of people than what John is thinking about here, but it, it, it helps. You know, as we have talked about this several times, John has his mind on a specific type of person who has left the faith. This is the type of person who has made a specific and careful denial of one of the fundamental aspects of the faith. Uh, they are denying who Jesus is. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ, God's son. So we think about these people. We think about them and how they've left and what this says about their spiritual condition and what they're now teaching. We think about them. But John, as he writes about them, the, the, the footprints of these men and women are all through this book. As we think about those who've left, John also wants us to think about ourselves. How is it that we're not going to join them in walking away? Those who are part of us. 
What's to keep us from going down that same path that they've gone down? That's the question that we're supposed to be thinking about. This actually makes me think of Howard Hendricks' Bible. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Seminary. He taught pastors for 50 years, and he used to occasionally talk about his Bible because at the end of his Bible, the last flyleaf of his Bible, Howard Hendricks used to keep a list of men he knew who were in ministry, many of them who he taught, people he knew who were in ministry who had had to leave the ministry because of some sort of moral transgression. Most of them had committed adultery. And he kept a list of these names, these men, in his Bible, on the back of his Bible. And whenever he would talk about his Bible, whenever Howard Hendricks would would describe that last page, every student in his classroom thought to themselves, I don't want to be on that list. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I don't make it on that list. I don't want to make a shipwreck of my life like those men have made. Well, you're supposed to be thinking about that as we read through this passage of Scripture and those who have left. I don't want to be like that. What's to keep me from being like that? If we've talked about uh, last week, or last time, we talked on the basis of of, of 1 John 2.19 that real Christians stick, what we're going to find out here is that the emphasis in verses 24 to 27 is that perseverance is a community project. Sticking is a community project. If real Christians stick, then sticking is something that we do together. Or uh, to help us probe these verses a little bit better, I want to ask this question. If real Christians stick, how does God work so that we stay stuck? Does that make sense? If, If real Christians stick, what does God do to keep his people? How does he help us so that we don't wander off? And John mentions two ways in this text, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about what God does to keep his people stuck. And we're going to get to those, but first I want to look at something he says in verse 26 that warns us about the danger uh, that we're in, or the danger of this situation. Verse 26 says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. There are those who have left the church who are actively working They're inviting, they're nagging, they're pleading with John's readers to leave leave the people, to leave the church and join them. Come with us. We have the truth. Come with us. Don't stick around with those, that, that old people who follow that old apostle. Come with us. We've got something better. We've got something more exciting. You should join us. And, and John says, I'm writing to them about you. I'm writing to you about them because they're trying to lead you astray, and what they're doing is dangerous. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, we live in an environment. I, I think of the, the hymn that Isaac Watts wrote We live in a world that is no friend to grace. We live in an environment, like Christians have from the beginning, where the truth about Jesus is in short supply. Not that it can't be known, but that it's not celebrated. It's not spoken of. It's not, it's not spread. There's a lot of talk about Jesus in the world in which we live, but not a lot of truth about Jesus in the world in which we live. Some say, like in this passage uh, today, just like then, they say, Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not the promised Messiah. Or they say, he's not the Son of God. He's not the Savior. 
to whom you must turn for life and forgiveness. He's not the Lord to whom all will bow in submission. He's not the coming conqueror, the king who's going to return and rebuild the world. He's not the supreme treasure. He's not the one to whom, uh, for whom it is worth losing everything. Jesus, so they say, may be of some importance, but he's not of ultimate importance. And if you believe anything of these things about him, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, the coming King, the supreme treasure of utmost importance, then you're wrong about him and maybe even dangerous. Uh, this is the environment in which we live. If you live in certain parts of India or Pakistan or Afghanistan or parts of Iraq and you're loyal to Jesus, your life is in danger. In other parts of the world, you're just a little kooky. Uh, do you know who Sheldon Cooper is? Sheldon Cooper. Sheldon Cooper is a character on the CBS sitcom Big Bang Theory. He's a brilliant physicist, and if you just have any doubts about that, ask him. He will tell you how brilliant a physicist he is. Um, Sheldon Cooper uh, is socially odd. I'm not a psychiatrist. He probably has some sort of mental diagnosis. He's an odd duck, all right? He's a lovable odd duck, though. Now, for the last couple of years, uh, CBS has had a television show on that, that parallels the Big Bang Theory called Young Sheldon, and you meet Sheldon as a nine-year-old boy living with his family in Texas. Um, I have not seen much of the show. The cast seems very talented in the show. Sheldon's mom is a devout Christian, and, and the family regularly goes to church and Sunday school. What I like is I've seen several clips of the show with Sheldon in Sunday school because he would be the Sunday school teacher's nightmare of all nightmares. So um, Sheldon asks at inappropriate moments hard and unusual questions. And the pastor of this church who teaches a class or who's preaching, he's a well-meaning man. He's a likable man. He's, he's always befuddled by Sheldon's questions, though. He's always confused. He's always unable to answer. He's always outsmarted by this brilliant nine-year-old. Now, the problem with the show is that there are answers to the questions that Sheldon is asking. There are thoughtful people who can at least address what Sheldon is saying, but... but they're never on the show, and they would never be as nearly as funny or as charming as everybody else is on the show. Uh, some of you, you know, recognize the name Albert Moeller. I, I listen, some of you like, uh, we, we listen to uh, Albert Moeller's podcast. Albert Moeller is brilliant. He is the president of Southern Seminary. Um, he grew up in the South attending a Southern Baptist church. What I think would be a great television show is to put nine-year-old Albert Moeller and nine-year-old Sheldon Cooper in the same Sunday school class and let them go at it. That'd be a good show, right? It'd be a good discussion. They could talk about the strengths and weaknesses in each other's arguments. The problem, it would never, it would never work on television, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit the prevailing view in the world that if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, there's something wrong with you. Thinking people don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There were those who were trying to lead John's readers astray. There are cultural headwinds against what the apostles taught. So this is a real issue. Something to think about seriously. How, how in the face of this pressure, does God work so that we stay stuck? Two ways. First, he commands us to persevere. 
he commands us to persevere. Verse 24 says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. There's lots to think about here in this, but um, one of them is this, this basic command. Real Christians stick, but one of the means that God uses to keep his people stuck is by commanding them to persevere. Why are you still a Christian today after all of these years? Are you still a Christian because God is keeping you or because you continue to believe? And the answer to that question is yes. One of the ways that God keeps his people is by commanding us to persevere. Now, we're going to focus. I want to show you the pattern of this in the Bible. But uh, uh, we're going to focus when we get to our application part of this, uh, part of the message. We're going to talk about obeying this command and what obeying this command looks like. But I want to, for just a minute, think with you about God's commands. Some of you are inclined to read this and you think, so So it's up to me that God puts this burden on me and it's my responsibility. Well, I want you to remember that one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that one of the ways that God creates things is by commanding them. That God causes things to happen by commanding. His word of command is often a word of creation. He brings into existence, he makes real what he commands. Think about Genesis 1, the creation account. How does light come into existence? Light comes into existence by God commanding it to be. He says, light be, or let there be light. Similar, let there be remaining, and it happens. God creates by commanding. Or just think about all the miracles that the Lord Jesus did. What does the Lord Jesus do when he wants to raise a little girl from the dead? What does he do? He goes in and he commands her, little girl, or he says, darling, Get up now. And she gets up. He creates by commanding. What does he want? How does he he get a dead man out of the tomb? He yells into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. He creates by commanding. What does he do when someone's ears are plugged and they can't hear anything? He puts his finger in the ears and he says, be opened. He creates by commanding. So when God commands here in these verses, this is part of his work. He is bringing this into existence. It's not just merely this burden that he places on us. He is his creative word. His commanding voice is his creative word. Now, what's interesting is I'd like to talk to Lazarus someday. Maybe I'll get that chance. And I say, Lazarus, how did it feel when when you were hopping out of the tomb in the grave clothes? I'm... Did you feel like you were being pulled like by some machine or something was pulling you? Or did you have to really work at it to get out of there? How, how, did, that, how did you experience that? I think he might say something very much like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. This isn't on your note sheet because I added this part of the sermon after your note sheet was done. But in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing about, uh, speaking about his own ministry. And he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder, he says of the apostles, I worked harder than all of them. I have worked harder than all of the apostles. 
Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Lazarus, how'd you get out of the tomb? Man, I had to work. It was so hard to hop across in and, and the, the grave clothes and get out. I had to work hard, but it was God's grace working in me. Right? So that's how I want you to think about this command that, Jesus, that, that John is issuing, the Holy Spirit. See that this remains in you. Now, a couple things to look at. This is a pattern in the Bible. The Bible often, God often commands his people to persevere. This is a, a, his, his um, a common activity. Now, we're in 1 John. I want you to flip over with me just a couple of pages to the book of Jude, the little tiny book of Jude. So in 1 John, you're going to go past one page of 2 John, one page of 3 John, then to Jude. And I want you to look at verse 21. Jude, verse 21. Look what it says. Here's the command. <coughs> Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Keep yourselves. All right? Then look at verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen. Who keeps God's people? You or him? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, keep yourself in God's love. And he's the one who keeps you. See that, it sounds very much like 1 John 2, doesn't it? See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If you have heard, if what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, you will remain in the Father and in the Son. Now, something similar happens in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 32. This I wrote down on the green sheet. If you want to look at Hebrews 10, verse 32, he says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great Conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along those with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. There's the command. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I don't take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So the author of Hebrews has every confidence in his readers. Every confidence that they're going to, you're not going to be the ones who are going to shrink back. You're going to go. You're going you're to go for it. But then he still tells them, you need to persevere. Can I, can I remind you just as an aside here, this is one of the lessons about one of the ways that we encourage one another. One of the ways that we encourage one another, sometimes explicitly, is by saying to each other, don't quit. Don't quit. This is what the author, uh, the readers of Hebrews needed. They needed the author of Hebrews to write them and say, don't quit. Persevere. It's been really hard following Jesus because of the persecution that you have endured. But don't quit. Keep, keep going. Or in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes about some people who have been caught up in, a, in sin, in terrible sin. They have been... Uh, 
They've failed. They've fallen again. They've brought disrepute on the church and on the gospel and on themselves. Their hypocrisy is unmasked. And Paul sends spiritual leaders to go after them. Go find them and, and restore them, those who have fallen. Your ongoing struggle with sin this morning, your ongoing struggle with sin may cause you to want to quit following Jesus. Don't quit following him. Maybe you want to quit because of suffering, some sort of loneliness or grief or some sort of loneliness, or you're in some financial hole that you just can't get out of. Maybe some of you want to quit because you have unanswered questions, questions that are too painful to ask. It's embarrassing to admit that you have questions like that. Don't quit. Brothers and sisters, there are people who are sitting around you this morning who have a host of unanswered questions. The circumstances of life have given them unanswered questions. And if, if perseverance is a community project, we're here to, to encourage one another. Don't quit. Don't quit following Jesus. Now, what's striking to me about this passage in 1 John is the relationship between the message, what you have heard from the beginning, and remaining in the Father and the Son. This message, this message that the apostles preached, what you heard from them from the beginning of their work, has to remain in you, and the message itself must remain in you so that you remain in the Father and the Son. So the apostles came and they proclaimed this message about the Lord Jesus. They had a specific message of what they saw and what they heard and what he did. They focused on his miracles and his teaching. They talked about things that proved that he was no mere mortal. And then they spoke in detail about his death on the cross. He was not found legitimately guilty by any court, but he went to the cross anyway. He died, and when all of our, their hope was gone, he rose from the dead, and everything is different because Jesus rose from the dead. This is what the apostles are teaching. He died and, and, and rose again, and you can be reconciled to God because of it. You can be forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty of the sins that you owed. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back someday. See that that message, that message that they preached remains in you. The message is the connection that keeps you tied to God the Father and God the Son. Notice how message-centered Christianity is. This distinguishes it from some of the other major religions of the world. Christianity is historically verifiable and historically falsifiable. Following Jesus is not centrally about an experience that you have had. It's not about all the feels that you get on Sunday morning. It is about a commitment. It's about a remaining in the truth, a set of historical commitments. Now, I know that some of you may, this may bother some of you. We have different opinions about this, these matters in the room, but we have to be honest. Our president says things frequently that are just not true. Um, and I'm talking about fake news, and I'm not talking about spin or interpretation. I mean, things that are verifiably, easily verifiably not true. For example, last week, he said that Robert Mueller, the special counsel, he's no fan of him, of course, uh, he said, Robert Mueller worked for President Obama for eight years. That's not true. It's just not true. Um, regardless of what you think about the investigation, it's just not true. 
Now, some of his supporters say that their loyalty doesn't depend on Trump's inerrancy, that Trump doesn't have to be inerrant, that, that he's generally speaking in the right direction, and the factual errors, well, they don't matter as much because he's generally moving in the right direction. That's not the way it is with following Jesus. Um, there is a direct connection between the account of Jesus the apostles told and the truthfulness of it and remaining in the Father and the Son. The message matters. Now let's think about how you obey this command. How do you obey this command to see that something <coughs> remains in you? Uh, John is writing about here, I think, reviewing and renewing uh, what you believe about Jesus, allowing it to control your thinking and your actions, reminding yourself of it, soaking your mind in this message, thinking about it a lot. Howard Marshall says this is an emphasis in a lot of the later books of the New Testament. Look at 2 Peter 3. I wrote it down for you in the green sheet, I think. It says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate to you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Think about them. Bring them to mind again. Recall them. Meditate on them. Or 2 Timothy 1.13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Set your mind on it. Guard it. Keep it as the pattern of your teaching. I think that what John is talking about here is actually built into the life of the church. If you contribute, if you participate in the life of the church, perseverance is a community project, you'll be doing what John says. So when we gather together, we, we read the Bible on Sunday mornings. We, we remind ourselves of what the text says. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper, and when we take the Lord's Supper, we renew in our hearts and minds what Christ has done for us. We pray together. We approach the Father in the name of the Son. We sing, Jesus is Lord, he's king. Some believers, not us really, some believers, when they meet together, recite those ancient creeds. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. They're remaining, this truth is remaining. Say these words, repeat them. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Give yourselves over to them again and again. Renew them, recommit yourselves to them over and over again. Uh, one of the reasons that weddings can be happy occasions is because not only are the time to celebrate a new union, they're also a great way to help those who are attending weddings. I learned this from uh, Russell Moore several years ago. Uh, he said he doesn't let couples write their own vows. It's a practice I, I generally try to keep. Most of the time, the, the, the uh, brides and grooms, they write their own vows. Most of the time, they're about their own feelings, Sam Albury said, we know how you feel about your, one another. It's your wedding day. We know you love each other. We don't need 17 lines of bad poetry to prove that you love one another, right? Uh, but when you stand up in front of a group of people and you repeat those lines, right, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, 
till death do us part. You're entering into a stream that uh, goes back hundreds of years. And every married couple in the room, when they hear those words again, remembers when they made those same promises, when they said those same words, and it turns them toward their beloved again. See, it's not what's unique about a wedding that makes a wedding beautiful. It's what's the same about a wedding that makes a wedding beautiful. It's, it's time to see that what you promised remains in you. A couple of years ago, Real Life Magazine had an article about the growth in the market for athleisure. It's a great phrase. Athleisure. Athleisure is a fashion trend in the United States. People wear fancy athletic attire, uh, expensive athletic attire from brand name manufacturers from Under Armour or Lululemon or Gap Body or Athleta. They wear it at, at Nike everywhere. They wear it everywhere. Sweatpants, sweatshirts, yoga pants. People wear athleisure shopping to the post office, to the grocery store, to class, to church. They wear it everywhere except actually to the gym to work out in it. Um, so here, here's a statistic, you'll love this, from 2009 to 2014, um, sales of yoga clothing, sales of yoga clothing increased 10 times as much as actual participation in yoga classes. So we wear the athletic attire, but we don't actually sweat in it. That's not the way Christianity works. Don't put Christianity on and then not work it out. Lace up your Christian shoes, zip up your Christian hoodie, and then get moving. See that it remains in you. Work it out. On Thursday morning, while we were having the turkey bowl here, it was great. There were over 90, almost 100 players here in the freezing cold weather. Whew, it's cold outside. Uh, there were almost 100 of us here. There were several hundred people not too far away running a race at Millersville University, their Thanksgiving uh, 5K. They've done this for a number of years. Several of my family members were over there uh, running it. I don't know the exact number of how many people were running, but let's just for illustration's sake say 792, all right? There were 792 runners. My nephew Declan came in 791st, and my father came in 792nd. It's fine. One of them is five, and one of them had bypass surgery in June. But they ran the race. They kept going. They finished the race. Don't quit. Don't quit. People will pass you. That's fine. Someone's going to be able to run faster than you. That's okay. Keep going. Keep going. See that what you have heard in you remains. Remains in you. Verse 25 reminds us what's at stake. And this is what he promised us. Eternal life. This is what God promised. Eternal life. Do this command. Fulfill this command. Obey this command because it's worth it because what's at stake is eternal life. If real Christians stick, how does God make sure that we stay stuck? First, he commands us to hold on. He commands us to persevere. Now, here's something else he does. Number two, he teaches us by the Holy Spirit. He teaches us by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27 says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all these things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, <coughs> just as it, the anointing, has taught you, 
remain in him. Now, John mentioned this anointing for the first time back up in verse 20. And uh, even when we talked about it last time, I'm pretty sure that the anointing he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say it explicitly here, but what the anointing does in this passage is the same thing that the Holy Spirit does in the Gospel of John. When Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to come, the Holy Spirit does, John's, uh, Jesus' description in John, hear what John says he does. So look at John 15, 26. When the advocate... The Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He's going to teach about me. The Holy Spirit, that's what he's going to do. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll teach. The Holy Spirit is going to remind you of these things. The Holy Spirit teaches you about all things. Now, notice the connection here between the Holy Spirit and the truth and how closely they are allied here. Mind if I get a little historical? I'm listening to a lecture series about the, the Reformation, and uh, I'm enjoying it very much, and now I'm going to uh, ruin your day by telling you about some of it. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, at the end of October, every year we celebrate the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. He wanted to start this debate about um, the Roman Catholic teaching about forgiveness and indulgences and things like that. We date the beginning of the Protestant Reformation to 1517. Well, uh, for the next few years, between 1517 and 1521, Martin Luther was continuing to grow in his understanding of the Bible and the gospel, and, uh, uh, but from 1521 to 1522, there was about 18 months there, where Martin Luther was in hiding. He was um, uh, kept uh, secretly in a castle of one of the German princes because his life was in danger. Uh, he grew a beard. He dressed like a knight. Everybody called him Sir George. One time, uh, towards the end of this, he was out and about wandering, uh, dressed as Sir George, and he went into a tavern, and he was reading his Hebrew Bible, and there were some theology students that were nearby, uh, at a table nearby, and they thought this was very odd that this knight would be reading a Hebrew Bible, he's reading the Psalms, the Hebrew Bible, and they went over and they sat down, and, and uh, Sir George began to tell them about how, he, uh, how Jesus Christ appeared in the book of Psalms, and he did it taught them using the German, uh, the Hebrew text. That should have clued them in that he was no normal knight. Uh, then, uh, then when he got up to leave, uh, he left before they did, and then uh, when they left, they found out that he had paid their bill. Four months later, they went to class, and they sat down, and who should stand up to teach them but Sir George? Clean-shaven this time. That's not even the point of this story. But during this time, so Martin Luther was in hiding, in 1521 and 1522, he was in hiding. The Reformation, though, continued in Wittenberg, uh, led by some of Luther's friends. And in 1522, three men showed up in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, and they were from a town of Zwickau nearby, and they named themselves the Zwickau Prophets. And the Zwickau Prophets came into Wittenberg, and they said, we have a connection with the Holy Spirit we know the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit speaks through us. And in fact, we have the Holy Spirit so much so that we don't even need the Bible. And that's what brought Martin Luther out of hiding. He couldn't stand hiding over that. 
he had to go and address these problems created by the Zwickau prophets because Martin Luther knows, knew that it is impossible to separate the work of the Spirit from the message of the Word. Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit. They go together. The Spirit works through the Word to accomplish His purposes. I wonder, actually I wonder if the Zwickau prophets were operating under a misunderstanding of verse 27. This would make sense, I suppose. Look, it says in the middle of it, you do not need anyone to teach you because you have the anointing and teaches you about all things. Now, that's an odd statement to make in a book that's filled with teaching, right? You don't need anybody to teach you because you have the anointing. But I think John is specifically uh, going after these false teachers, Remember, these false teachers were those who claimed that they had some sort of special knowledge. We have special knowledge. Uh, we have special <coughs> knowledge, and we can tell you the real truth. John may have told you some things about Jesus, but we have special knowledge that we can tell you, and we'll only tell you if you join our little group here. So we have this special knowledge, and we'll give it to you. John says, you don't need special knowledge like that. You have the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He reminds you of what the apostles have taught from the beginning. Anyone that the God has gifted to teach has to teach in accordance with the same Holy Spirit. And the anointing helps you sniff out those false teachers. One of my favorite things that happens sometimes as a pastor is people will come up to me, members of the church, and they'll say, hey, um, do you know this person? They'll mention some teacher they heard, some man, some woman. And uh, yes, I've heard of them. What, what do you think about what they say or what they write? And I um, usually delay the conversation enough so that I can look them up on Wikipedia and figure out something to say sometimes. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll look into it and I'll come back and say, oh, you know, uh, there's this teaching, that there's some things you should be concerned about. And they usually say, at the end of that conversation, they usually say, that's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. It's the Holy Spirit giving them a thumping a little bit something not right about this. The Holy Spirit does. He, he helps, and he's, he's a sufficient teacher, isn't he? So the text says, he's the master of all things. The Holy Spirit teaches you all things. He's a trustworthy teacher. He's true, and he's not a liar. And he says the same thing that John says, remain in him, remain in him. John Stott summarizes these verses by saying that God keeps his people by the word you heard and the spirit you received. It's a pretty good summary. The word you heard and the spirit you received. This morning, I want to invite you again. I want to encourage you to commit yourselves again to this message, anew and afresh. To set yourself again this morning on remaining in it, treasuring it, pursuing it. Come at it again like you do on that first day of class in August when you have all those new notebooks and they're fresh and clean and they're filled with blank pages and you're going to fill them in and you think to yourself, I'm not going to procrastinate this year. I'm going to take good notes. I'm going to do my homework in advance. I'm ready, right? Come at it like that. Or Come to this message like you approach January 1st. It's a new year. It's a time to renew the habits and patterns I had in the past. It's a fresh slate. It's a new start. Here we go again. The message itself is not new. But brothers and sisters, when we meet weekly, 
uh, daily as you rise, refresh your commitment to it. Again, again, take it up. Take it up again. This is my faith. Jesus is my Savior and Lord. He is our master. Renew and refresh your commitment. This renewal is how God keeps you. It is a renewal that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray, shall we? (coughs) Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for your great mercy to us through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we are thankful to you for this message that we have heard from the beginning. Uh, The apostles taught it. They told us what they had seen and heard and they wrote it down for us this true and trustworthy message. Lord, um, we are tempted as we read this passage to think only about those who have left and not about us here. So I pray that you would remind us to be balanced and diligent about this in this remaining work that you have called us to. I pray that you would renew in our congregation a a, a commitment toward... uh, and joining and encouraging one another to persevere. That our growth groups and our Sunday school classes and our women's Bible studies would be places where we renew and uh, afresh our commitment to, to Jesus Christ and that, we would, that they would be places where we would encourage one another to press on, press on in this work. Lord, I'm thankful to you for the grace that you give us to um, encourage one another and to remain. May that flourish in our congregation for the sake of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.